in these introductions, we've, we've really labored to show a couple of different things. We've seen how God gives the commandments after Israel has been rescued. We've, we've driven this home two weeks in a, in a row now. He doesn't demand their obedience as a means or as a prerequisite for them to be saved. Instead, he saves them and then he gives them the commands. The grace precedes obedience. Last week we saw just that these rules were, how these rules are intended to work for us today. As Christians under the new covenant, we aren't bound to these rules in the same sense that the people of Israel was. Our obedience is tied more to our heart than our specific actions. And we'll talk more about that here in just a minute, kind of flesh that out just a little bit. But we saw how the law has no power to save us, nor does it, because of Christ, have a power to enslave us to its demands. Because of Christ, all that has been changed. I would like to go back and just re-preach last week's message at this point, but you'll just have to go to the podcast and listen to it. But it's important that we consider those things, and as we, as we dive into the Ten Commandments, those things have to be kind of uh, the, the framework with which we see these Ten Commandments. And so this morning, we'll take the law, the Ten Commandments, and we'll let it diagnose our hearts. That's what we saw last week. And then we'll take the law, and we'll let it give us a path forward for our lives. That's going to be kind of the, 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 the pathway for the morning. It's going, to, it's going to diagnose our hearts. It's going to show us something about God. And then it will give us a pathway forward for our lives. And I wonder what you think when you hear the Ten Commandments. Chris kind of alluded to this just a minute ago whenever he was talking. What do you think whenever you hear the Ten Commandments? Or even more generally, if you want to back up a little bit, what do you think of when you hear about rules? What comes to your mind? Is it a negative connotation? I think for most, the idea of rules is a negative connotation, maybe not for everyone. When you hear that, do you immediately think, okay, what are these things that I really need to follow? Or do you think, what are these things that I'm going to try my best not to obey and see what I can get away with? I think there's kind of two people in life, right? Those that hear rules and immediately think, what do I need to do to get in line? And then the others are those that hear rules and they think, what do I need to do to make sure that I can get away with everything I can get away with? Rules are meant to be broken, right? Two kind of different people in life and how they view things. When you hear the word rules, do you just immediately begin to bristle and kind of get uncomfortable? Or do you think, I've got to do these things and I'll figure out how to do them because I want to make sure I am a rule follower? Both of those, I think, are completely normal reactions. It could be a whole sermon where I, we could just talk about what that tells you about yourself, but we'll just move past that. But both are normal reactions. In our family, uh, a staple in our house, uh, honestly, much to my chagrin, uh, is that we like to play board games and card games. Uh, anybody out there just like big board game fans in there? In there? All right, so there's some of you. To me, board games are not B-O-A-R-D games. They are B-O-R-E-D games. They are board games. I'm bored whenever I play board games. But my wife loves them. My kids tend to like them. And so we play all kinds of them. It kind of goes in seasons depending on what's going on. But uh, it doesn't matter, it's Uno, it can be Clue, it can be whatever. We, we play all kinds of different games. One of the games that we play, how many of you guys have ever played the game Ticket to Ride? 
All right, so there's a handful of you in here. Ticket to Ride, we've got the like, junior edition, the, the first journey edition. This one I think is kind of fun. I actually enjoy playing this one. Emily doesn't like it as much, but the kids like it. I like it, so I try my best to swing the kids in that direction when it's family game night so that we can play that one. So we, we've enjoyed this one, but here's the thing. Every one of these games that we play comes with a different set of rules. And you've got to know the rules if you're going to be able to play the game. This game, Ticket to Ride, can be a little bit of a, of a complicated uh, game. You, you see it's got all this stuff on here, and this is the, the junior edition. I can't imagine what it's like if you actually do like the, the full thing. We haven't, we haven't ventured into that territory yet. But we've played this game uh, three or four times, I think, and every time that we play it, we play it differently because I find a rule that I missed the first time. So every time it's like, oh, wait a minute, I know we did that last time, but we shouldn't have done that last time because I just read this rule that I missed the last time. So it's, it's like the rules kind of add up every single time that we play it, and so it can get a little bit complicated. I'm the designated rule reader in our house because Emily says... I'm too lazy. I'm not doing that. Somebody else is going to have to do that. And I'm like, well, you've got to know the rules or you can't play the game. She's like, whatever. Just read them and tell me what we're supposed to do. Unfortunately, what that leads to is a lot of very false accusations of cheating. That's what happens a lot is whenever I begin to win the game, suddenly she's interested in the rules, right? Or whenever she does something or the kids do something that seems to play to their advantage, and I'm like, well, no, you can't do that. And they're like, oh, well, now I can't do that. I'm like, well, then you read the rules to start, and you can be the enforcer because I didn't volunteer for that job. I got assigned that job. And nobody likes it whenever the rule enforcer has to come in and say things because nobody likes to be told you can't do that. But here's the thing, without the rules, you've got complete chaos. The rules set the parameters for the game. The game is nonsense without the rules. You have to have them. If you want to succeed, then you have to play within the rules. Now, don't press this analogy too far because it will fall apart in a hurry. But just for that little piece of, of, of a picture there, it gives us an idea of the way that the Ten Commandments can serve us this morning and how it can be used in our lives. And so what I want to do today is I want to look at what's essentially the first three commandments. The first three commandments and what those commands can do for us this morning. And the three things that it can do for us is it can teach us about our heart, it can teach us about God's heart, and it can teach us where joy is found. It can teach us about our heart, it can teach us about God's heart, and it can teach us where joy is found. So I want to start the way we did last week. I want to read the Ten Commandments, and then we'll see what God has to teach us this morning. Exodus chapter 20, verse 1. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness or anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation to those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not... Take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. 
Verse 8, remember the Sabbath, Sabbath day and keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is the Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. You, your son, your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. And therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land of the Lord, long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall, shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. These are the Ten Commandments. Well known much discussed. And there's a lot that we could say about these. I had to wrestle really hard with whether or not we would take 10 weeks to go through the 10 commandments and take one commandment at a time. But I didn't want to, I didn't want to do that because I want to see kind of the, the forest more than I necessarily want to see the, the trees. And in light of what we've talked about, about being a pathway for us, what I want to do is I want to break this down into two weeks, right? I'm going to break this down into two weeks, the way that the Ten Commandments kind of naturally breaks itself down. Two separate sections, and then we'll see what it has to say to us. If you look at the Ten Commandments, they take a a form that that we'll follow this week and next. The first three, maybe the fourth, we'll talk about that in just a second. The first three, maybe the fourth commandments, primarily focus on our relationship with God. The following commandments, the final seven, have to do with how we treat one another. So we'll call the the, the first three of the commandments our vertical commands, and the final seven our horizontal commands. Now that fourth one about remember the Sabbath, you could probably put it in either category, but I think it better fits in the second category as being a horizontal command, having to deal with our relationships with others. But the first three have to do with our relationship with, with God, the vertical commands. And that's what we'll look at this morning. Jesus kind of echoes this whenever he summarizes the commandments. Matthew chapter 22. Jesus says, or Matthew writes, But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And then Jesus said to them, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. A second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Now, obviously, the the Ten Commandments are not two commandments. It's not written just like this, but Jesus effectively summarizes the Ten Commandments in this statement. The first is to love God. The second is to love others. And that's what we want, to, we want to look at this morning is we want to follow Jesus' pattern of how to separate out these two things and kind of summarize them in these two different categories. And we'll come back to these comments that Jesus gives later, but for now, we see the summary that Jesus gives us. Vertical commands, horizontal commands. Love God, love others. And this morning, when we look at these first three commands, I think we will see that we can learn about God, we can learn about ourselves, And we can learn about our source of joy. The first command is simple enough, well known. It's the basis for the title for our series, No Other Gods. You shall have no other gods before me. 
That seems to be an academic point when you walk into a church. That one seems to be kind of base level. You say, well, of course that's the first command because of course that's the first command. Like it just seems to make sense to us that that one would sit in the front. But for Israel, this wasn't necessarily just common sense to them. Remember, they had just come out of a very polytheistic culture where uh, Egypt had a God for everything. And what we know is that Israel had, become to, uh, had, had come to kind of integrate the religions of, of Egypt into their own religion. And so they too would worship some of these other gods. Now they may, they may say, well, yeah, Yahweh's our main God, but then we've got these other gods too. Yahweh's our, 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 our main one that we claim because he's ours, but you know what? I need all these other things too, so I'll just borrow from what Egypt has. And we, we looked at that whenever we went through the plagues. If you'll remember, anything you wanted, they had a God for it. You wanted a good crop, you prayed to the harvest God. You wanted a baby, you, play, you prayed to the fertility God. If you wanted a good trip down the river, you prayed to the Nile God. You found the God for whatever you needed for what you thought you needed to be happy. And then through the plagues, what God shows up and, and does, what he makes very clear is that he declares authority over every single one of these gods. Remember, the plagues were not just random events that God thought would really bug and really annoy the, the, the Egyptians. The plagues were a systematic dismantling of the, 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 the God system that Egypt had created. And so God shows up and he tears down this pantheon of gods, dismantles it right in front of their eyes. And he does it for all of Egypt to see, but don't, don't misunderstand. He does it for all of Israel to see as well. So now whenever he brings Israel out, out he wants to set the tone right from the beginning the, with what their relationship was going to be like, what the, the basis for their relationship, God's relationship with Israel. He wants to set the basis for what it's going to be like. He's not interested in being one God among many. He's not interested in being just the one that they claim while they bring the others along with them. He wants to be the God that you come to for everything. Not the God that you come to for some things. Not the God that you come to when things are hard. Not the God that you come to whenever you need some help on this certain area. But he wants to be the God of everything. And he will assert himself in that position right from the word go. He doesn't even want to be the one that you like the most. He he wants to make it very clear that he is the one that is in charge. Israel, you don't get another God. You get me. And you get me for everything. This is the first command that he gives. We have to start there as well. It wouldn't make any sense to put any other command in the first position. You see, if you, if you look at this, it wouldn't make any sense for you to go and put thou shalt not murder as the first command. It doesn't make any sense because if you do that, then you get things out of order and the authority goes all askew. It doesn't make any sense because the first command is the ultimate command. The ultimate command places God in his ultimate position of authority. And so what we have to see is that when it comes to the the idea of authority and the sovereignty of God, he's not going to play second fiddle to anyone. And he doesn't hesitate when he issues the rest of these commands. Think, Think about it this way. 
I've coached my kids in, in, in various sports over the years, baseball, soccer, all kinds of different stuff. Right now, I'm an assistant coach for Abby's middle school soccer team. I'm in a very limited position of where I can, I can issue commands, right? I can issue commands within the scope of authority that the head coach has granted me. I'm in no position to issue commands outside of that scope of authority, So while I may be able to tell the players to run a certain strategy, I may be able to discipline them and make them run laps, I may be able to do certain things, there's other things that I have no business telling them. Right? The head coach has the ultimate authority in that scope. I have a very limited authority in that scope. And even more limited to that is I can't tell them to go home and clean their room either. And I can't tell them what type of music that they need to listen to. And I can't tell these girls what to do in their spare time. My authority is very limited in their lives. Do you see how that works? I can't issue certain commands because I don't hold a certain place of authority. And so right from the beginning, what God is telling Israel is, I can issue any command I want because I am the supreme authority. There is no other. I don't take just authority over your spiritual life. I take authority over all of your life. I don't just take authority over how you talk. I I take authority over how you interact with your neighbor, how you interact with your wife, how you interact with your kids, how you interact with your mother and your father. I take authority over all of it. And so the first command for us places God in a position of authority where he can demand anything and everything of us. So do you understand how that works, how the first command has to be the first command? Because if it's not, then his authority is limited. But he makes it clear in the very, very beginning that there's no other God that can sit in supreme seat of authority. He asserts his command, and it is not limited to any scope. It is preeminent and sovereign over all. This is where God begins because it establishes the ground rule for everything that will come after it. Martin Luther once made the observation that you can't break any of the other nine commandments without first breaking the first commandment. Do you see how that works? Because if God's authority, if God's the authority and he says, I'm the king, and then he gives you all these other things that you have to do, all these other rules, if you break the other rules, you've broken the first rule. So you can't break the other nine without first breaking the first commandment because the first commandment sets the ground rules for all the others that follow. Next, God begins to assert certain specifics about where he wants his authority to be felt, right? So he lays out the general position that he's God, nobody else comes before him, and then he starts to kind of list out, and let me show you what that looks like in this realm, and let me show you what this looks like in this realm, and let me, that's what he's going to begin to do from this. So the the second command is all about constructing images or, or objects that he is somehow supposed to be represented by or somehow supposed to be in. Now, obviously, this comes in the context of what Egypt, was, uh, Egypt had done and what, what Israel had seen in Egypt, but it gets much bigger for us. He wants to make sure that the first command is not misplaced into something else. 
The authority that he asserts was not, was not meant to be placed into some man-made statue, into some man-made thing, but it is to rest in God himself. And he wants to make sure that these newly freed slaves don't try to limit the God of the universe to some trite, man-made trinket. They had seen the Egyptians do this, and today we do the same thing so often. We trade the authority of God, the, the glory of God, for something that we've made with our own hands. For something that we have created. For something that we have done, that we can stand up and we can say, I did this. And that can so quickly become the place where we say, that is where my glory is found. That is where I find glory in what I celebrate. And God says, that's not where you're going to find glory at all. So don't do that. Very specifically, what he's trying to say is that those man-made things that are even meant to represent him are hollow. They fall greatly short of who he is. So don't do that. Don't create those things. God goes on to tell us in this same command, he, he goes on to tell us that he is a jealous God. Now understand, this isn't your high school boyfriend jealousy that we're talking about. That type of jealousy is born out of insecurity. The jealousy that, that we're talking about here is that God is absolutely committed to himself above all else. Not to you. Not to your happiness. He is absolutely committed to himself and his glory above all else. After all, what else would we want him to be committed to? He is committed to himself because he is supreme. And he wants to make sure that we honor him as such. That's what it means for God to be a jealous God. Again, he is to be the one in the seat of authority and we are to do nothing to challenge that or to give that authority away. The next command is that we are not to take the Lord's name in vain. Now, if you grew up in the South or you grew up in church, you've probably been told what that means. It means that you can't say God's name in, 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 in a way that is disrespectful to him for instance, whenever you stand up from putting your kid in the car and you knock your head on the roof of the car, you can't use God's name in the wrong way there, right? When you're using a hammer and you hit your thumb, you got to watch the words that come out of your mouth so that you don't use God's name in vain. So you've got to create the Christian curse word instead, right? You have to say, dadgummit, or gosh darn it, or golly gee, or something like that. You've you got to say something to make sure that you don't violate the third commandment, right? You've got, you've got to say something so that something else comes out of your mouth and you're safe here. But if that's our application here, then we are deeply missing the point of the commandment. The idea really isn't primarily about cussing at all. It's about using God's name in a way that doesn't line up with what we've seen from the other two commands. We've seen in the past, and we talked a lot about the, the position that God's name holds. Back whenever we were, we were looking at, at Moses in the burning bush, Chris talked about it, I talked about it. We talked about the, the position of God's name and the reverence of God's name. As he reveals his name to Moses in the burning bush, what becomes very, very clear is that his name is important, and it is to be revered. Because within his name, God carries his glory. We've just talked about how God is jealous for his fame, but that's not all that he's jealous for. 
In Ezekiel chapter 39, it says this, Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Now I will restore the fortunes of Jacob and have mercy on the whole house of Israel, and I will be jealous for my holy name. Do you see that? Jealous for his name. It's the same idea that we just applied to the previous command. The same idea that we just uh, applied here. God applied it to what we make with our hands, but now he asserts his authority with what comes out of our mouths. He says our mouths are to give God glory and to honor him and not to defame him by using his name in a flippant, calloused, hollow way. Our speech about God should mirror his rightful position in our lives. So yes, cursing using God's name would dishonor this. So yeah, that's a partial application of how you can use this. But so would talking about God as though he were only a means to an end. As though he were the one that you call on just whenever you need something. And then whenever you have that thing, you put him away and put him in his box. We've talked about this idea before that God is simply our butler. When we need something, we ring the bell and we say, God, come and get this thing for me. That is another way in which we take God's name, we take his glory, we take his power, and we use it in vain. Because that is a hollow, hollow consideration of who God is. It's the same idea. When it talks about using God's name in vain, it's not talking about using God's name in a cuss word. It's talking about using God's name, who he is, in an empty, calloused way. And this is what the command is all about. So if we're to use the law appropriately this morning, if we're to consider things appropriately, then we must apply these lessons from these three commands. First, what does it teach us about God? This is what we've been sitting here covering for the last couple of minutes. It tells us that he is jealous for our worship and for our allegiance. Not just our affection as a God among many, but that he asserts his authority over and above all. There is nowhere that he will not assert his authority. From the things that you make with your hand and the way you worship with the things that you've made to the things that come out of your mouth and the way you worship with your speech. So these commands highlight his authority and his worthiness to assume that position of authority. So the second question that we need to ask and that we need to let the law teach us this morning is what does the law teach us about ourselves? Think about this. There wouldn't be a need to make a command if it's something that you would do on your own. There would be no need for God to make a command for something if it's something we would have done anyway. I don't need a command to eat a Krispy Kreme donut. I will do that anyway. You don't need to tell me to do that, right? You don't need to tell me to go do that. I'm going to do that. You need to give me a command that says you need to like juice celery and drink that stuff. That is something you need to give me a command for because I'm not going to do that anyway. You'll, so God needs to lay out his authority in such clear terms in these commands because our hearts, and I mean this literally when I say this, are hell-bent against these commands. There's nothing we buck against more than acknowledging that someone has full authority over us. The reality is that every single one of us is not born a Christian. 
We are born with our own religion where we worship our own image that we craft and we create, and then we refer to ourselves with our own language, and then we, ref- and then we place ourselves in our own position of authority. My chief natural religion is Tonyism, right? That's what I am. I am, a, I am a Tony worshiper through and through. And there's nothing I want more than for me to sit on the throne of me. That is how I am born. From the moment I come out of the womb, that's how I am born. I must answer to myself above all else. I am supreme authority. And how much does our society try to drive us in this direction at every turn. They tell us things like, you have to be true to yourself. Just follow your heart and you can't be wrong. Just live out your own truth. Just be true to yourself. There are hundreds of millions of religions out there, and there's a hundred religions in here. Each of us sits, at God, sits as God in our own little religion. And when others don't get on board with that religion... Well, that's when we start to have problems. That's when conflict happens. That's whenever we start to wage war with one another, right? Whenever you aren't on board with Tonyism, I'm going to have a problem with you. That's the way this works. And whenever I'm not on board with you as your supreme authority, then I'm going to have a problem with you. And this is where conflict comes from. But this is how we're all hardwired from the very beginning. And then God shows up. And he doesn't just say that you can't have Tonyism as like a main thing, but he demands that I repent of it. He doesn't say, let me assume the throne beside you. He demands that I repent of sitting on my own throne. He comes and he blows up my little religion. And then I have to make a choice. Will I obey him and his commands and have no other gods before him? Not money, not my spouse, not my job, not my education, not my dreams and my goals, not even myself. Or will I simply make him a god among all these other gods? And this is why God has to issue the command. Because otherwise I would not put him in that place. Because they fly in the face of what everything within me wants to do from my sinful nature. Did you notice back in Matthew how Jesus both summarized and expanded upon the Ten Commandments when he talked about them? Let's read this again in Matthew 22, verse 37. He says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. He summarizes them by breaking them into two categories, but then he expands right there at the beginning. We are to love God with all our heart, soul, and mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. That's Jesus bringing the emphasis down and explaining the Ten Commandments on a very street-level, heart-level. Having God as our supreme authority in our lives isn't just about some kind of chief judge or chief law enforcement officer that that lives in demands of certain actions and then we reluctantly carry them out because that's what we have to do. The act of having no other gods before him is not simply an act of a forced will. It is the act of devotion that demands all our hearts, 
that demands all of our soul and it demands all of our mind. This is what it means to worship God and to obey his commands. But here's the thing. Here's the thing about doing what Jesus says to do right here. And if we're honest, all of us have had this thought at some point. It flows from what I was just talking about, about sitting on your own throne. Is that whenever you read this, and this idea of God being in the the place of authority in your lives, whenever you think through this, if you're honest, that doesn't sound like a good deal for you at all. That doesn't sound like a good deal for me that Tonyism would be rejected and I would instead follow Christ and allow him to sit on my throne. Because after all, who's going to be more about Tony than Tony? Nobody. It's going to be me. So this doesn't sound like a good deal for me. Yes, God gets glory, but I, I get rules. What kind of exchange is that? That's not a good deal. Rules are not something I'm looking to add to my life at this point. I'm good. In fact, I'd like to have less rules in my life so that I can pursue what I need to pursue, get the rules away from me. This kind of personal authority is is everything for us. This kind of autonomy is something we all crave. So why would we give up that kind of autonomy? Why would we we move away from that kind of autonomy? That's That's what God's calling us to do. That's what it means to be a follower of Christ. Why would you give that up? Because that sounds like a bad deal. You get rules, he gets glory. Well, it sounds good for him, but not so much for you. We all want fewer rules, not more. And this is the third thing that these commandments will teach us this morning. They will teach us where to truly find joy. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, this is probably one of your central sticking points before coming to Christ, before following him. When you consider Christianity, this is probably one of the main areas where you say, this doesn't make a lot of sense for me. Why would I do this? Why would I give up this exchange? Why would you sign up for Christianity if it just means you give up your autonomy for a God that makes rules? Why not just stick to your own agenda, running your own life, with your own happiness at its core? Even if you're here this morning and you are a Christian, If you're honest, you've asked yourself this same question. And you've just shrugged it off out of some misplaced sense of obligation or duty. And you do these things because you're supposed to. But you still have these questions. Why wouldn't it be better for us just to run our own lives and to pursue our own happiness? Can I answer that question as honestly as I know how? Because all of us in here, we are all idiots. We are all idiots. And I don't mean that to be disrespectful. I'm right in this same boat with you. Think about it this way. If you gave your five-year-old everything he wanted to make him happy right now, I mean everything that he wanted to make him happy, he might live till what, the end of the week, right? If you give him everything that he wants, like it's going to destroy him. He can't have all that stuff that he wants. If all he's going to eat is is all the candy that he wants, he's not going to have the nutrition to make it 10 days, let alone another 10 years. If you gave your 16-year-old everything that she wanted, then her last day is going to be a miserable one, right? Think about yourself 10 years ago. 
You were an idiot then, right? Ten years from now, you're going to look back on this day and what you're going to realize is you're an idiot now. You think you've got it together now, but ten years from now, you're going to realize, no, I was an idiot, right? This is the way it works. As you grow older, as you get older, you see how dumb you were before. This is how this works, right? So for us to presume that we know what is best for us is folly. It's foolishness is what the Bible calls it. To pretend that we know right now what's best for us and what will make us happy is absolute nonsense according to Scripture. But do you know who does know what will make us happy? What will bring us joy? What will bring us contentment? The one who created us. The one who gave us these commands and says, work within these commands. And this is not, this is not something I give you for, for your restriction, but for your joy. To worship God and to have no other gods before him is not a command that restricts us and robs us of autonomy. It is a command that frees us and gives us joy like nothing else can. This is what the commands do for us. They give us our freedom and our joy because it frees us from being our own God. It frees us from having to make every right and perfect decision which we will foul up a thousand different ways. It frees us from that. Taking our own glory away and our own autonomy and giving that all to Christ and and following Him and sitting under Him, that is the most gracious thing God can do. And so when God issues commands, that is not a legalism that is thrust upon us. That is a grace that is mercifully given to us. You see, we can't be trusted to know best what will make us happy and joyful. We need someone else, someone with more wisdom, someone with more authority, someone with more worthiness to show us the way. And this is what God does through the commands. We'll look next week and we'll see how this plays out with our own relationship with others. But in these commands, we see how our relationship with God must work. He takes the place of authority and we follow him graciously. And the beautiful thing is, I don't care how dumb you have been in the past. I don't care how big an idiot you have been in the past. I don't care how much you have rebelled against every one of these commands. The law has no power over us because Christ has set us free from the power of law and of death. That is the joy. That is the simple gospel that we just sang about. So this morning, if you're here and you're like, I am the idiot among idiots. Welcome. That's why we're here. Because Jesus is grace. Jesus is mercy. The commands teach us a pathway for joy. This morning, won't you make that choice, make that commitment? Won't you give your life to Christ in the same way that the first command calls us to? To love God with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. Next week, we'll look and see what it means to love others. The reality is that we will find our happiness, we will find our joy on the other side of holiness, not this side. And so when we pursue Christ, and He makes us holy because He is holy, that's where we will find our true happiness. Will you pray with me? Father, this morning, it is our confession that we have no clue what we should need. We have no clue what will make us ultimately happy. 
Father, we are all fools. That is our confession this morning. Father, help us to repent of all of our own little religions that we have. Of all the false gods that we've placed in our lives. All the ones we've created with our hands. All the ones that we've spoke of with our mouths. Help us to repent of putting our own selves at the center of our world. And help us to see the beauty, the freedom, the wisdom, the joy that is found in putting you in that place. Father, I pray that this morning perhaps someone would do that for the first time. And I pray that for each of us, we would repent and we would do it again every single day. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.